Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway, a Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. It's my pleasure to welcome you to today's conversation, Ownership at Work, a discussion on designing and growing employee ownership. This conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series in which we explore the state of economic opportunity in the U.S., the challenges workers, businesses, and communities face, and ideas for change. We're grateful to Prudential Financial, Walmart, the Cerdna Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, Bloomberg, and MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth for their support of this series. A special thank you to J.P. Morgan Chase for their support of our work on job design, which has informed today's conversation. Today's discussion is the third and final event in a series, a three-part series, The Job Quality Choice, Opportunities and Challenges in Job Design. In this series of conversations, we've been challenging the notion that low-quality jobs are inevitable. Indeed, the prevalence of low-quality employment demands that we think anew about how to design jobs. In 2019, the Brookings Institute reported that 53 million working adults were in low-wage hourly jobs. That's roughly one-third of the entire workforce. And Gallup reported that only 44% of Americans said that they had a good job, defined by satisfaction with the job characteristics that they care most about. And that reflects that while earnings are critical to a good job, job quality is a function of more than wages. And job quality problems impact people beyond those that are economically struggling. We also know that many job quality problems, such as low wages, discrimination and harassment, and unsafe working conditions, are disproportionately experienced by women, workers of color, immigrants, and younger workers. We need a mind shift about work and job design. We need to stop prioritizing labor cost minimization and the maximization of management control in job design choices and start investing in worker productivity and designing jobs that empower and engage working people. We need jobs that both incentivize employee contribution to organizational success and that include workers in the benefits of that success. We've been examining some of the decisions that determine the quality of people's jobs as well as the opportunities we have for making different design choices that lead to good jobs where workers and businesses thrive together. In this final conversation in the series today, we'll be exploring one of the most significant choices a business can make. <clears throat> Should they share ownership of the business with their workers? Research has shown that when employees share in the ownership of the business, and when that shared ownership is structured well, employee ownership can enhance both business performance and job quality. In addition, given the high proportion of wealth that is in the form of business assets, employee ownership holds potential to contribute to addressing racial and gender wealth gaps and advancing a more equitable economy. But that caveat of when designed well is important. Though compensation and company valuation are important, ownership is not just a financial tr transaction on paper. It's a culture of engagement and worker voice that lives in the workplace. That opportunity to own part of what you build is resonant in US culture and remains a popular idea. In 2019, researchers at the Rutgers Institute for the Study of Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing reported that in a nationally representative survey, 72% of Republicans and 74% of Democrats responded that they would rather work for an employee-owned company than for shareholders or for the government. So how do we translate that shared aspiration and that broad-based support into action? 
What role can government play in encouraging more business owners to build employee ownership into their companies? What are the financing, information, and technical assistance gaps that need to be addressed? How do these needs vary across forms of ownership and different types of companies? How can philanthropy support learning and innovation in this space? We have some great experts joining us today to tackle those questions and more. I'll introduce them in just a moment. Um, a quick uh, note that while today's discussion concludes our series, it's just the beginning of our discussion of uh, employee ownership. We'll be transitioning to employee ownership's moment, conversations to advance policy and practice, which will be taking a deeper dive into different forms of employee ownership. So watch this space for more conversations, and we'll be starting that one on November 17th with democratizing work, the role, opportunities, and challenges of worker cooperatives in the U.S. Okay, now a quick review of our technology for those joining us remotely. All attendees are muted. We welcome your questions. Please use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen to submit and upvote. We also love it when you share your perspective, ideas, experiences. Please use the chat function to do that and share your resources and thoughts on the topic of employee ownership. We also appreciate your feedback. Please take a moment to respond to the feedback survey at the end of this session. Uh, we encourage you to tweet about this conversation. Our hashtag is talk opportunity. If you have technical issues, please message us in the chat or email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. This event is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our website. Closed captions are also available. Please click the CC button at the bottom of your screen if you'd like to activate them. Um, okay, so today's structure is a little bit different. We kind of have a twofer. So we're going to begin with a conversation with Gina Schaefer, founder and CEO of A Few Cool Hardware Stores, and Frank Lindsay, employee owner and manager, Old Tacoma Ace Hardware. Um, a Few Cool Hardware Stores recently began the transition to becoming an employee-owned company, and Gina and Frank will help us ground our conversation today in sort of that experience. Um, also, if you want to learn more about the story of a few cool hardware stores, uh, Gina recently released her book, Recovery Hardware, which personally I found to be a very engaging and uplifting read about the opportunities for uh, a business that's really built on trust in people and commitment to community uh, to make a difference. Um, a second quick plug, my colleagues Matt Helmer and Yuri Chang recently released a profile of Gina and a few cool hardware stores focusing on this employee ownership transition, so we have some uh, additional resources there. Um, following the conversation with uh, Gina and Frank, we'll talk with Jen Briggs, contract CEO, chair and chair of the Employee Ownership Commission of Colorado State, Todd Leverett, co-founder, APIS and Heritage Capital Partners, and Jean Warford, Program Officer at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Uh, toward the close of our session, we'll be joined by U.S. Senator Chris Van Holland of Maryland, who will share some of his thoughts on the potential for employee ownership. We have bios of all of these people on our website. They're amazing. You should check it out. Uh, but I'm not going to say more about them now, because now it is my great pleasure to welcome Alana Samuels, who will be moderating today's discussion. Alana is Senior Economics Correspondent at Time Magazine, where she writes about topics including work, housing, consumer spending, and the supply chain. She was previously a staff writer at The Atlantic and correspondent in both New York and Los Angeles for the LA Times. Alana, thank you so much for being here, and let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Maureen, and thanks to all the panelists for being here. I'm really excited to have this discussion today. 
Um, as someone who writes about economics in work in particular, it can be really depressing sometimes, um, you know, with an economy focused on efficiency and productivity, you hear a lot about jobs getting worse. And, you know, I first started writing about this in the aftermath of the Great Recession, and all these people were saying to me, you know, these jobs aren't, aren't what they used to be. And I think since then, it's just gone downhill. But there are also some examples of where that's not the case. And I think a lot of times employee-owned businesses are, are a great exception. Um, I wrote two stories. I'm just going to put them in the chat. Um, they were a long time ago, but um, one of the kind of most fun stories I ever did was I went to King Arthur Flower, which as people may or may not know, is an employee-owned business. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a flower place. There's, it's a bakery. There's lots of yummy treats or lots of wonderful things about uh, visiting, but my favorite part was going to the call center because you typically think of call centers as kind of not very fun places. And this King Arthur call center was just, everyone was so happy that, um, you know, I started to kind of really think about why is that? And I think a lot of it had to do with the way that King Arthur is structured. Um, you know, obviously there are challenges too, from the time I wrote these articles, a lot of the places that were employee owned are no longer, or they went out of business. Um, so I'm excited to talk about kind of the promises and perils as well. Um, but I am excited to just launch into this first discussion um, with Gina and Frank. Um, so Gina, let's start with you. Um, I know your company is called a few cool hardware stores, but I think you have more than a few now. Tell me a little bit about your business and why you kind of started thinking about employee ownership. Sure. I, I also want to say that we chose a few cool when we had three and then it stuck. It became one of those nicknames that we couldn't get rid of. And so we, we realized that our math is bad. Um, we actually visited New Belgium Brewery and my husband and I in 2018, and we were so excited to talk to the employee owners there and, and hear more about the structure um, that we tucked it in the back of our minds and, and thought maybe this is something for the future. And then if you fast forward really during 2020 and 2021, uh, there was so much unrest and our my office sits on 14th street where a lot of the protests in washington dc occurred and we started thinking about how as a company we could be part of a solution and even if it was a small part what would that be um thought back to new belgium and decided that perhaps employee ownership would be the way that we could um, affect some change uh, for the folks that work with us and so that was really the, the beginning of all of it and just out of curiosity before that you know when your stores were still growing, what had you thought uh, your kind of exit strategy would be? You know, I, people had asked me, I started the business in 20, uh, 2003, and people started asking me almost immediately what my succession would be. And honestly, I had no idea. Um, I was very, I was young, I was just growing the business. I, I hadn't really thought about what I was going to do or when it would end. Um, so we thought of all the, the traditional things eventually, selling it to a private owner, selling it to private equity, um, selling it to employees, you know, one specifically, for example, or a group of them. Um, and then when we when we realized that the ESOP was a, a really good option for us, that became the fourth or fifth and final solution. That's great. Yeah. So Frank, tell me um, how you heard about this idea, um, what Gina was thinking of and, and what your reaction was. Um, so the first time I actually heard about it was when I actually got promoted into management was the same day or the first meeting was the same time that we first uh, discovered that the ESOP was forming and Gina was uh, selling it to us as uh, the other employees. And um, I think my initial reaction was more um, 
confusion, I guess, of what exactly a ESOP is, because it's not something you hear about every day. So it was just, I, I wasn't quite sure what it was. And I was curious about what, um, what more and what that means to, to us as employees now that, um, you know, Gina is, is exiting and selling it to us. Um, and it, as I'm going into it more, it's, it's meaning more, it's, it, it's giving me more, um, I guess, incentive that the, the company's investing in me. And so I'm realizing that I'm being invested in, um, cause usually, you know, we invest in a company with our money, our, our time, and don't always see a return on that, um, right away. Whereas, uh, with this ESOP, you know, seeing that return and that investment, um, you know, we got our first uh, valuation and, you know, being able to see that number really, uh, really puts it in perspective. How long have you been with the company in, in its entirety? Uh, in its entirety, I've been with um, Fuku Harwards for about two and a half years now. Okay. So you're, mm -hmm. you shot right up to management. It sounds yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I fit right in with the culture and, um, you know, I, I think I just had some good ideas and, uh, they, they saw, saw my worth. So, yeah. <laughs> so Gina, tell, tell us where things stand now. Um, you know, it's obviously a process, um, but where are you now? It is. So the day that we announced, we had about 165 teammates that automatically became owners and that's a rolling entry. So every time someone reaches a year and a thousand hours, they are invited or welcomed into the ownership. Uh, team. I think the the challenges that we have now really is just educating all of the worker owners on what that means, and then all of the new hires on what it can mean. Uh, I don't think I realized the the depth of the confusion um, when we first started. And so, to be completely honest, we're a year in, and I'm still making sure that I can talk about it appropriately and that I can say it so that it makes sense. Um, it's it's in it's in effect a, a qualified retirement plan. But that sounds kind of boring. I mean, that doesn't really, that doesn't, I, I don't, and Frank can back me up or, or tell me that I'm wrong, but it doesn't convey the excitement that particularly a young person or a person growing in their career can feel when they come to their, to their job. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, we think about employee ownership, there's obviously a financial side, but I think a lot of it is about employee ownership. So how do you how do you kind of translate that? Hey, this is kind of a retirement plan. To hey, you're also a part of the decision making of this company. Yeah. So there's a, there's definitely a distinct dif difference between management and ownership, and so we're still working on the language because it doesn't automatically mean that everybody becomes a manager right away or a boss or necessarily that the decision making tree changes. I think for us, um, once we got to that first valuation, which happens once a year in an ESOP, I think that's when it really sunk in. That, oh, wow, this is tangible. There's money involved um, that I will, one, leave on the table if I, if I leave, and two, can really make bigger if I participate more in the growth of the company. So everyone from you know, the brand new associates on up have an opportunity to increase that bucket. I think that's probably seeing that number has probably made the biggest difference. Yeah, Frank, you mentioned, you know, you saw the valuation and that kind of helped make things real for you. Talk a little bit more about that and what what that kind of made real, seeing that number. Yeah, so um, with it, it was a lot of, you know, it, as, as Gina was saying, it's a, a glorified retirement plan when we first heard about it. You don't really know how that number, uh, that valuation comes up and how, you know, the, the employees definitely on the, uh, you know, associate level they they don't quite understand like this this is all the you know 
it's a, our company is going into that valuation. It's not just, and so putting that tangible number on it has really, uh, help me explain it to my staff and even new people coming in going, Hey, you know, yes, you're not going to be in management, but your, what you do in your paint department, in your electronics department, that goes directly into our valuation, our profit, everything that we do day in and day out of our daily operations that ends up increasing our valuation or decreasing it if we have a bad year, but what work we put in, comes back to us after we, you know, as we put it in. So it, it is nice to see that number and actually go, you know, we had an increase in paint sales last year. Look, this is the new valuation. This is what we have. Like I can show you that your work is working and you are actually getting, um, you know, you're getting a return on that work you put in besides just your normal paycheck and salary. When you say valuation, I mean, what is, what are the employees seeing exactly? Is it what share of um, profits are kind of going to their retirement accounts? So it, it's a little hard to, it's complicated to explain, but there's basically like the, the, when we created the ESOP, we allocated a number of shares to that ESOP and then the valuation, the profit from the company is proportionally assigned to each of those shares, which is then I'm probably screwing this up and somebody on the call could probably explain it better than me, then proportionally allocated to the worker owners based on how much they, they make. So, um, and that, that will change every year. This year might've been a little bit bigger because we had allocated a bucket of shares. And so that remains to be seen, but um, I, I'm more than happy to send out more information or make that make more sense if it, if it didn't there, but that's the gist of it. So Frank, if the idea is kind of um, the better we do, the better you do at your job, kind of the more we all benefit. Do you think that has changed, you know, coworkers' attitudes or the people who report to you, their attitudes or, or kind of how they think about work? Or is it still, you know, so far away from a lot of people that it's, it's kind of hard to really picture it, I guess? Um, I think my approach with it, because I kind of like to already run the store with a more of a mindset of, um, you know, you, I, you have responsibility and accountability of your, your position. So I, and I, I want them to make those, those decisions, like to think a little bit outside the box and not just have me tell you how to do it. And I think that um, a good example is one of my, uh, my paint coordinator, he, he, before he, you know, was really great at his job, but he wasn't thinking outside of his department. When it came to us becoming owners, um, he started thinking about how can we improve the rest of the store? Because he now realizes that that's coming back to him. And so he comes to me and says, hey, I, I know I don't work in the, the lawn and garden section, but I've noticed this. Can we do this? So getting people to kind of think a little bit outside the box and bring it to us so that way we can, you know, I you know, help them out and actually listen to them. I think that is a big thing with this employee ownership is we're all owners together. So we're all going to listen to each other in a way to try to make our company better together. Yeah, that's a really great example. Um, well, Gina, it's it's probably hard to tell because of the pandemic and just the economy right now, but you do have all these studies that suggest that employee-owned businesses do a little better than, than non-employee-owned. Have you seen any kind of impact on the bottom line or, or I guess just tangible results from employees like, like Frank was talking about? 
Yeah, I think it's probably uh, it's probably too soon to say whether or not there are going to be lasting changes, but we did have an increase in the first year, which was really exciting for that first valuation. Um, we traditionally have a lower turnover than, well, a much lower turnover than average retail locations. Um, and I think that that's probably been pretty consistent over the last year as well. So I think, again, one year, it's not really fair for me to say that everything's been great because it's one year. But I, I think that we are going to follow in the path of seeing the improvements because we've made the change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so Gina, looking back, if you're, if you're talking to other business owners who are thinking of making a similar change, are there things you wish you had done differently or things that you think everyone really needs to know if they're going to, if they're going to do this? About forming an ESOP, you mean? Yeah. 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 So um, one, it's not cheap and it takes a while. So it's really just, it's really good to ask a lot of questions in advance. We, employees don't put any money in. That's usually some, that's a misperception. Everyone thinks that if you're selling it to your team, that they're writing you a check. That is not the case at all. So I would say um, we had all of our financials locked down. My husband is very good. He's our CFO, very good about making sure that everything is done to the letter. And I, you want to make sure that that's the case. If you're going to form a, a, a ESOP, um, find a great consulting partner and trustee. There's a whole team that you put together that includes attorneys and those folks. Um, and then recognize the fact that there are costs involved. And then the emotional piece is probably the piece that I, I, I knew, I knew to ask, I knew that it was probably going to be a challenge, but I don't, I wish that I had known more in advance, perhaps how to present what it is, uh, the pros and cons, thinking about what some of the negative feedback might be. Uh, but I would recommend that anybody in a succession planning process consider forming an ESOP. Frank, what about you? Um, anything you wish you had known at the beginning or ways that you found have been successful to kind of, you know, if, if other companies are thinking about doing this, how to present it to your employees? Um, so I guess in the future, um, a, a little better way next time for us would be just having, um, as Gina was saying, kind of that like emotional side and that, you know, what, what, what does it mean to us, you know, now that we're owners, just kind of uh, having a, a little cheat sheet, something to kind of break down all that little information and the things that, um, you know, kind of get lost on the wayside, because there is a lot of information that comes out when we first start the ESOP. And so it's a lot to go through. And, you know, everyone's skill levels are different when it comes to, you know, either finance or business management. So not everyone, you know, knows what they're looking at. So I guess having better, you know, just better communication on cheat sheets would be something. But um, as far as I, like, I think people should move towards the direction of ESOPs. Um, I have a, a entrepreneurial spirit. I've been, you know, always looking into, you know, investing in myself in long term. And this, this is a good middle ground where I can have a career and an investment at the same time. Yeah, that's great. Um, Gina, when you were kind of thinking of doing this, were there other models, um, similar models that you were thinking of pursuing? Um, and, and do you kind of think back, think back longingly on some of those? Or was this kind of the clear model for you? It became clear fairly quickly. We, we um, researched doing a worker cooperative, um, a, uh, which would have been an option for us, but I think for our size, I think it probably makes sense that we went with the ESOP. Um, that was probably the other option that we really looked at most closely. We did talk about saying, well, we, 
if there were five employees, for example, who were interested in buying, would we sell it to a, a contingent of, of folks? And that just, it didn't seem equitable to us. We wanted to be as equitable as possible. So this is, it ultimately shook out that this was the best. That's great. Yeah. Um, well, I want to give each of you just um, a moment to have, if there's anything else that you want to add or that we didn't get to bring up um, in this time we had together about ESOPs or, or your experience um, doing this, I'd love to, I'd love to hear. Frank, why don't you go first? Um, I think like with the experience that we're having now, it's a learning experience and we're working towards figuring it out. And everyone, you know, has a lot of these questions, but um, I, I, I'm very hopeful and excited for like where we're going to go with this. Um, I can't wait till uh, we start making more decisions as a whole on the company and, uh, you know, looking into uh, continuing and expanding a few cool hardware. So I, you know, I can't wait for to get into those decision making and help with that. <laughs> Great. Um, and one other thing I want to ask you, do you think consumer or your customers know and understand and does that change anything for them? Um, yes, I do. Um, our so Tacoma Park is a very nice uh, area. I don't know if you uh, are familiar with in DC, but um, our neighborhood is is really close, and they're actually really happy. Um, we have a co-op around the corner, so they they like these type of businesses, and they were very happy for us when they saw that you know we became employee owners. Um, we I have customers that you know one one reason or another from before they stopped shopping at us but they saw we were employee owned and they came into the store again and uh i was able to convince them to stay with us because you know like i was i was telling them hey everything's different now like we're the same same company but we have a bunch of new owners and we're gonna you know make this better for you that's great um yeah gina anything else you want to add um maybe words of advice for for other people considering this or just kind of reflections before we uh, have to move on to the next panel yeah, I mean, I think my my words of advice are, you know, if somebody wants to talk about the challenges or the excitement uh, to call me, I'm more than happy to talk about it. But reflect, thinking about the nuances and, and what kind of the path that I've gone through, um, we are talking about a lot of hourly wage employees. So my average uh, of the of the 160, my average teammate, um, who is now my co-owner, co is an hourly wage employee. Those issues, the issues that go along with that are not solved by creating the CSOP, meaning if we can't as a, a system or a country figure out how to continue to raise those wages, or it, you know, we try it, we have a, a bit of an up and out, like learn a lot so you can go on to a higher paid job somewhere else if we don't have one for you. If we can't figure out those things, just layering on an ESOP is not the solution. That's not gonna, that's not gonna solve those problems for us. So I think for me, it's sharpening my pencil and figuring out how we continue to chip away at both, raising wages, better work environment, um, more opportunities for our team. And then layered on is this, oh, by the way, I'm also an owner in this business. Or I have to leave and go where I can get all of those things so that my daily, my daily needs are met. So I think, I mean, I knew that, but now that we've now that we've formed the ESOP, I can really move into thinking about that a little more professionally. Yeah. Well, don't sell yourself short. It's not, it's not everything, but it's certainly, uh, I think a, a big tool that, that businesses can use. Should they, should they have that option? Thank you. Um, well, Gina Schaefer and Frank Lindsay, thank you so much for, for talking about your experience. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, and I'd like to call the other panelists back. Um, so we can kind of go into a little bit more, 
um, I guess, more of a 10,000 uh, foot or 20,000, 30,000 foot view of, um, of employee ownership. Um, so Todd, Jennifer, and Jean, um, thanks for thanks for being here. Um, let's just do a little bit of introductions and kind of have you each talk about how you came into this space. So Jean, we'll start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about WK Kellogg and its work on employee ownership and, and why this is something that's that's important. Good afternoon. Thank you, um, Alana. We're really um, honored to be here today to talk about this work um, and really excited about the work that um, Gina is doing. Um, the Kellogg, WK Kellogg Foundation, we're known for our early childhood work. You know, that really is where our sweet spot is. And so what we really are trying to focus on is to make sure that every child thrives. And in order for that to happen, um, families and communities have to thrive as well. And so when we embarked on this journey early of looking at, you know, how can we help move the needle for families um, and children living in poverty, you know, um, family economic security then became really uh, a more increased role um, within the foundation. And so our work began to look at, you know, where are the opportunities that exist for wealth building for um, these families? And so, you know, we had the questions, but we were really unclear about what some of the answers were to this. And so we teamed up with Rutgers and had them do one of the first ever studies around um, employee ownership to say, really, what um, does this work? Uh, does it work for low to moderate income uh, families, you know, workers? And the answer was yes. You know, they see in, um, instances where it does, you know, they're doing continued research to, to sort of drill down and see, you know, how these models impact and the particular impact on um, black and brown people. And so that's really started our journey um, along looking at um, employee ownership. And then once we had some of the answers to those questions, then we knew a direction that we needed to move, uh, to begin to move in. And so we started holding conversations with, you know, some of the leading intermediaries, you know, Aspen, um, Democracy at Work, Project Equity, um, NCEO, the National Center for Employee Ownership. We started having conversations with them about, you know, what is happening in this field um, and is it is there a possibility to grow this? Um, we also knew combined with that was the silver tsunami that's coming, right? That we all know that there's going to be this great transfer of wealth and uh, businesses and that, you know, a lot of the second and third generation um, children um, don't want to take over the business. They're pursuing other careers. And so um, we begin to also then look at what happens if these businesses go away? What will happen to the jobs in the community, the real estate in the community? What will happen to families and children then? And so we began our journey. We embarked our journey um, with each one of them sort of taking on a really um, big portion of the work where they were looking at, you know, how do we educate uh, business owners? How do we educate municipalities? How do we then now put together um, new tools uh, for um, employee ownership so that we can demystify the process so that it doesn't, you know, right now we have lawyers and accountants who like didn't even understand what it took to make it happen. 
And so, of course, when business owners were coming to them, the, the obvious way was just sell the private equity that, you know, you get your money, you'll be out, you know. Um, but what we know is, is that sometimes when that happens, we don't get the results that we believe should be intended um, for the well-being of communities. And so um, we were like, well, then what we need to do also is we need to put together something for um, lawyers and accountants. Let's demystify it for them. Um, we have organizations who are actually now developing culturally competent um, curriculums to share with uh, business black and brown business owners to say, this is what it looks like. Um, we know, and you know, we know that there are several variations of this where we can do worker cooperatives or ESOPs, you know, um, we support both, but we have a direct preference toward um, ESOPs for the very reason that Gina talked about is, is that it doesn't require employees to actually have to make the financial commitment. But what it does is, is that it has as an owner for them to make a work ethic commitment and a commitment to see the organization thrive, um, make profits and, and survive. And so, you know, we looked at, you know, we looked at Publix. Publix has cashiers that have retirement funds of over a million dollars. So we're like, okay, this is a model that we can sort of wrap our arms around. And, you know, one of the things that we know that we're battling as we try and help these families feel, you know, um, build their own family and generational wealth is, is that today, 56% of Americans, over half of Americans don't have a thousand dollars to meet an emergency need. You know, and if anybody listening knows everything today, when it when it breaks down, when it stops working, it starts at five hundred dollars. It's like it's five hundred dollars, right? It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's the car, whether it's the furnace, whether it's the air conditioner. You know, when it's a hundred degrees outside and it's not working, but that you know, so it's like we know that these families have don't have access to that. And so the, just the fact that they have a retirement fund that sometimes also could act um, as some 401ks do um, for them to be able to like, you know, take out a loan against it for emergency reasons, you know, hospitalization, you know, things that unexpected events in their families. And so these are the kinds of things and we know that, you know, closing the racial wealth gap is a really, you know, big thing that we're facing and how we begin to dismantle that. But we believe that um, employee ownership is a good place to start. Great. So you've been funding a lot of kind of research and resources for this, it sounds like. Have you also funded some um, transitions or no? So actually, you know, because we're, you know, um, a philanthropic foundation, you know, IRS doesn't really allow us to, you know, support businesses, uh, for-profit businesses. But what we do is, is that we support organizations that are providing the um, technical assistance to help businesses understand what this process is all about, what it will take, is their business, you know, perhaps a good um, candidate uh, for ESOP. But we also, on our programming-related and mission-driven investment side, and I think, you know, Todd might talk a little bit about this, is, is that, you know, we help through our, those kinds of program-related loans and investments. So we, that's directly how we support this work. Great. Well, um, Todd, Jean mentioned you. Um, I know you come from the more finance side of this. Um, tell us a little bit about APIS and how, how you fit into this world. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Alana. Thank you to, to Maureen and the Aspen Institute team for allowing me to be here. Uh, my name is Todd Leverett. I'm co-founder and co-managing partner of Apis and Heritage Capital Partners. We're a, a mission-driven and, and yet market-facing investment firm, and we're currently sponsoring our first fund, Legacy Fund One, which thanks to organizations like the Kellogg Foundation and their, their PRI investment, uh, recently closed out our fund at just shy of $60 million. Um, and Legacy Fund One uh, is, is what we see as our reimagining of, of capitalism and entrepreneurship in this country using the tools of employee ownership uh, with a specific uh, focus on those places, those communities, and those people that need it the most. So using these tools of employee ownership to directly address the racial wealth gap is at the core of, of who Apis and Heritage is and Legacy Fund One, what it is. Um, so, so, you know, what does all that mean in context? Uh, you know, like a traditional, you know, investment firm, private equity mezzanine debt firm, we find really great small and medium-sized businesses that have, you know, long histories of success, and what we do is we convert those companies over to 100% employee-owned using our, our MES debt product. Um, and we focus on doing that with companies that have large uh, BIPOC workforces. So we won't uh, convert a company to employee ownership that doesn't have at least a third of their workforce being BIPOC. And across our portfolio, at least 40% of the workers across the portfolio um, uh, will be BIPOC. Uh, to date, we've made two investments, a, a landscaping firm in El Paso, Texas, and a, a, a wet utility company in Denver, Colorado, um, representing uh, 200 workers and about 200 families. And, and to date, about 80% of the workers across our portfolio are BIPOC. So we had those floors, but what we're seeing and what we anticipate is that the vast majority of workers in our portfolio will be BIPOC. So, you know, what are we doing? We're allowing these, these workers, as, as Gina was referring to, as you were referring to, as Gene was referring to, uh, the opportunity to build wealth, um, an opportunity to have a, a, a retirement and, and, and escape generational poverty by doing, by leaving their families every day, working hard, and contributing to the growth and success of the, of the companies that they work for, which we think is, is just how it should be. Um, the, the other side of the story, like I said, we're, we're, we're market facing in that, that we believe that you know, the returns that we can have on our investments can be competitive um, with you know, other mezzanine debt products in the, in the open market. And we really believe in the business case for employee ownership as well, which you mentioned through some of the statistics that show that employee-owned firms grow faster um, they have lower turnover rates, they have better margins, higher productivity, and their workers are, are their lives are better off in, in a lot of ways, if you do it the right way, if you do it the right way, and if you structure it the right way. So really excited to be on the, the panel with, with so many folks who I respect so much. I've known Gene since I, I first, I was a, a baby in the employee ownership world. Um, and, you know, my, my, my theme is, my story is I, I met Gene, so I'm, I'm never going to fail because I met Gene, I know Gene, um, and, and excited to be on with everybody here today and, and share more about what we do and, and how more of it can happen in, in the United States. Great. Um, and Jen, um, so you come from New Belgium, which, as Gina mentioned, is an inspiration to a lot of people in this world. Tell us about um, your role at New Belgium and kind of what you're doing now in the, in the employee ownership space. Yeah, and you know, thank you for having me here. This is always just fantastic to get to talk about this. And I think it's so important to have more awareness, which I'll get to in a little bit with the Colorado Commission. But what I did at New Belgium is I was the VP of Organizational Development and HR. And, you know, it informs a lot of what we did there on what how to do a well-run company, because what I believe is that um, a really good company has a, a, a strong financial engine, meaning it's well capitalized, 
good cash flow, profitable, but then it also has a really strong social engine where people can come to work with dignity. And um, in the employee ownership context, a lot of people have much higher business literacy. They can contribute at a far different level than what um, some other business concepts allow them to do. And so it just creates um, a really dynamic work environment for people that changes things in a lot of ways, but simply plugging in an ESOP or a co-op or any other form of, of capital sharing doesn't do that. It's a management system issue. It's how people, how leaders lead the company. It's um, my definition of culture is it's the pattern of attitudes and actions of a given community. And so leadership shapes those attitudes and actions. And I believe proximity to ownership also does as well too. So when we have abstract ownership, it's really hard to make that kind of visceral connection. But when we have strong proximity to ownership, which employee ownership is probably the most proximate that we can we can get, um, it's really powerful. And so a lot of people probably know that New Belgium uh, sold. So they sold to a international company. And I think what was interesting to me is there was a lot of criticism around that sale. And I've seen some of that um, also with Cliff Bar recently. But I think it brings to our attention the difference between labor income and capital income. Um, and getting people, more people, access to capital income is really what this is talking about. And I think Gina said it so articulately earlier is labor income is one problem. Capital income is another problem. And they're both really important and they're different. Um, so hopefully a lot of ESOPs um, and some of the research shows this, that ESOPs are both, they're working on solving both of them. They tend to pay a little bit higher. Um, uh, one of the tools I love that Aspen Institute has is that uh, cost of turnover calculator is you know companies that don't invest in their workforces experience a lot of turnover and that's really expensive you're just watching really talented people and a lot of knowledge walk out the door and so having these management systems in place is incredibly important um yeah so it's it's informed a lot of the way i think about business and the work that we do now um you know going forward and you said so now just so people know you're with the state of colorado um, working on on kind of yeah. So I also work for the Beister Institute and in supporting uh, ESOP companies. But I think what we're doing now in the context that I'm really excited about is uh, in 2019, Governor Polis formed the Commission for uh, Employee Ownership. It sits in the state uh, under the Office of Economic Development and International Trade, and I think that's really important. Is in the state of Colorado, we see it as uh, one tool for more economic vitality. Um, and so that's really important. And the way it's structured is it's also um, sits as almost a peer to the state SBA. And so the way the state has a lot of things organized is there's a lot of interaction and influence between them. So they're not stuck in these different silos. Um, so that's really important. So in 2019, uh, Governor Polis uh, formed the Employee Ownership Commission. I'm now, I'm the second chair of the Colorado Commission, uh, so um, that's exciting. And what we've done is um, formed the Colorado Office for Employee Ownership. So the state of Colorado has a staffed office with people who focus on employee ownership. We have programming. Um, uh, we have programming, and so I'm just make, making sure that um, I want to put this in the chat so people can see it. 
Um, but for companies to come learn with each other, peer groups and things like that. But I think probably more hopefully impactfully is creating a durable system for employee ownership uh, in the state of Colorado. So we have um, a Colorado employee ownership grant that's offered through the state of Colorado that can help companies offset some of the expenses. And then there's also a tax credit that can offer up to 25,000, up to $100,000 to help companies transition to either cooperative or ESOP. And Gina mentioned this earlier, but it can be quite expensive to become an ESOP in particular. And even for a co-op, you have a lot of expenses. And so helping companies get through that hurdle to get to that. And of course, there's ongoing costs to support these companies and to make sure they're running well. But that hurdle of that transaction hurdle, um, I think has grown quite a bit over the 10 years. And so the state of Colorado has invested to help people um, get through that. So I think it's really exciting what we're doing. And then recently we just released um, the ownership readiness report. So the state of Colorado partnered with the um, Exit Planning Institute and it really brought forward um, how little business planners, business owners are planning for their transition. And so um, one of the stats that's in the report is it's almost 80% of companies are planning for an internal transition, but that's to family or an existing partner. And so they're not really, employee ownership of any form isn't really on the menu. And that's something that we really want to get is connect with attorneys, accountants, professional service providers, so that when somebody starts contemplating their exit, they are getting advice and this is on the menu. And maybe employee ownership isn't right for that company, but it should at least be part of the discussion. Um, yeah. And you know, sometimes we should say no, but sometimes we should say yes, but we can't even have the conversation. Well, that's one thing I think is very interesting is that um, a lot of people don't know about this and there are a lot of different formats and forms. So Todd, you said when done right, this can work well. I wanna ask you and Jen and Jean, you can weigh in as well, but what are the models that you think about when you think this can be done right? Obviously it differs between different companies, but are there certain models that you know, you've seen have, have really good um, results with employee ownership? Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll break that when done right down into to two pieces and I'll be brief. One, when done right, no matter what kind of form legal structure or structure of employee ownership means, when you are uh, engaging the workers as people, when you're engaging the workers as owners, um, when you're getting their input, when you're when you're really treating workers like worker owners or, or worker owners are empowered to be worker owners is, is how it's done right. And we talk about the, the benefits, the business benefits, uh, let alone the social benefits of doing that. That's whatever form you're doing that. You know, in the ESOP world, we always say an ESOP structure without um, uh, uh, ownership culture is you really just get another cool retirement plan. It's like a 401k. Oh, you got a secondary retirement plan. It's when you invest in that culture is when it makes a difference. So that's kind of the, the first when done the right way. The second when done the right way kind of goes, I think, to what you're leading to some of the different forms of employee ownership. And so there's there's a broad world of it, but at, but at risk of uh, oversimplification, I'll briefly say, you know, you can think about it in terms of, of cooperatives being, you know, one of the, the first, probably the, the oldest form of employee ownership and cooperatives are really, um, um, you know, value-driven businesses that at their core are serving the needs or specific need or a broad set of needs for their workers and the community. So really it's about, you know, the cooperative is about who 
the company exists for. And that's typically the workers in the community. And so usually, you know, workers are voting on a, on a one worker, one vote basis um, on, on decisions in the business, not necessarily all decisions, but, you know, kind of can vary. And then, um, you know, workers are able to participate in the success or failure of the business. That's the co-op model. And usually you'll see that in smaller in smaller sort of sort of businesses, right? And I, I think Gina referred to, they looked at and said, you know, for the size of business, ESOP made a little bit more sense. Um, on the, uh, one thing I'll say is that the core of, of the cooperative model are the, uh, the DNA are the seven Rochdale principles. I'm not gonna go into them, but if you've never read them before, go read them and imagine a world where, where every business and not just business, but society kind of operate off these principles. It's really interesting. Um, the second form and the most common form that you see in the US is the ESOP the Employee Stock Ownership Plan, which was set up in 1994 with the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, better known as ERISA, which some of you may know is the legislation that set up the 401k. So employee ownership using ESOPs in this country is the same age, is as old as the 401k, but you know, a lot lesser known. We always say that the lesser well-known, lesser cool cousin of the 401k. Um, and ESOPs are really a legal and a tax structure um, that enable you know, third party outside financing of employee ownership. So you don't need to utilize, you know, worker capital um, to create the, the ownership structure and provide some of the most tremendous tax benefits um, to employee owned companies, uh, uh, to companies that you've ever seen out there that really give employee owned businesses a, a, a market advantage over their peers that aren't employee owned because you got to engage employees and get these really cool tax benefits. And then finally, you have the, the EOTs which are the most common form in the UK, uh, and that stands for Employee Ownership Trusts, and they're now becoming more common in the US. And essentially what it enables to do is a founder to set a perpetual forever purpose to a company, whether that's the purpose of this company is to always serve the workers and provide them with income or to always take care of the environment. An owner can set that in place. And even when the owner is gone, that company will exist with that purpose. And you have organizations like a, a Common Trust with uh, Zoe Schlag and Derek Raza, who are trying to scale that and, and create an investment model around that in the in the U.S. So, like Patagonia recently became an EOT, and there's a lot of conversation around that. But that's that's kind of the the world, and there's more, but that's the the, the general world of employee ownership. Well, I'm glad you brought up Patagonia because um, I had the opportunity to visit them a few years ago, and even before this, you know, that you could tell the culture there was just this kind of employees really have a voice. But, you know, I think you mentioned kind of in making sure the culture is there, the employee ownership culture is there. But I think, you know, as Gina mentioned, when you're just kind of talking about, oh, this is a cool retirement benefit, it's really hard to build that culture if it's not already there. Um, Jen, maybe you can talk a little bit about your experience at New Belgium and if there are ways that you found building this, this culture um, around employee ownership um, really worked. Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, um, something I've added in all the time is um, it really does have to have a good sense of trust, because one of the things I think the most successful employee ownership cultures have, regardless of what they are, if it's, you know, some kind of shared equity co-op, ESOP, is people have to be able to trust each other and have that place of dignity, because the minute that happens, you can't have tension. And one of the great things about companies that have open cultures where people are business literate is you can debate issues and you can have dialectic where you're building on an idea. And to be able to have those conversations mean that people have to argue. Um, you have to have a very responsibility-centric culture where you're taking on this idea or you're taking on this challenge or this problem and you're able to figure it out 
um, in a different way. So it's not the C-suite or some strategist rolling something down to people. It's people saying, we have a business problem. There's something, there's an idea or there's an entrepreneurial something that we could do. And we're going to chew on this and we're going to figure it out. And you have to be able to disagree with each other. So I think sometimes when we talk about culture, people think about parties and perks and you know, all this kind of fun stuff. And in the new Belgium context, there would be like, oh, you got a trip to Belgium and you got a bike. And those things were all true. And (laughs) um, it was about being able to disagree with each other that I think really made it special um, that problems were rolled out. We do once a year strategy sessions with all staff where each one of us in the leadership um, team would actually come up with the, what's the one thing that keeps us up at night And we'd ask people to help us solve for that. You know, what are these things that, you know, if you've been in that leadership position, a lot of times you don't sleep because you're just trying to solve these problems and when you can bring them into that. So um, it's that dynamic blend of rights and responsibilities is you keep those in balance and you grow them and nurture them and build knowledge. And so people can be in the seat of, um, a stockholder, if you will, um, although it is in a trust, it's a beneficial shareholder, but they can wear that hat, which is sometimes different than your employee hat. And sometimes you might advocate for things that actually you wouldn't advocate for an employee, but you might as a shareholder. And it's fun to put those at tension and to solve for it. Um, it's it's a really dynamic experience. And I think we got that right on in a lot of the years. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I remember with, um, I think I went to a, it was a worker co-op that was a brewing brewery and they had a lot of employee feedback and some of the feedback was great. You know, they figured out how to make an outdoor patio to accommodate more people, but then you also had new employees coming in and every time the new employees would come in and they'd be asked for their feedback, they'd say, let's dispense the ketchup in a new way. And every time the older employees heard that, they're like, oh, not the ketchup again. Um, So I think it's hard to you know, balance hearing what hearing from everybody and also, you know, being efficient. Um, Jean, you know, you've studied a lot of tools that are available and, and a lot of um, examples of this. I don't know if you've run across any tools or, or kind of ways of, of creating this culture that you found really inspiring. Well, I think, uh, I think both Jen and um, Todd covered a lot of it, you know, and I think really at the core of it all is, is that it's, um, and you know, it's not unlike any other well-run company or organization, you know, when the employees are treated with dignity and respect, when they're giving a voice. Um, and, you know, as we know, in a lot of the work, you know, um, they oftentimes have the answers and the solutions to a lot of things that, you know, we try and figure out in a little bubble. And so, you know, from all of the conversations that we've had across all the different models, that always surfaces as one of the most important things. And that when that doesn't happen, then the organizations or the businesses begin to run into trouble. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Well, Todd, I want to go back to you and talk a little bit about private equity, because I think um, when a lot of people hear the term private equity, it can sometimes raise a a red flag. Um, And as someone who used to work for the LA Times, which was owned by Tribune, for those of you who don't know, there was a whole lawsuit um, when Tribune, I don't remember the exact, but um, the people who bought Tribune used the ESOP to try to maneuver some 
stock thing and there was a big lawsuit and people were very unhappy about it. Um, so how can private, what role does private equity, can in private equity play in ESOPs and who's making sure that it, that it isn't, you know, playing a role that makes employees or the owners unhappy? So, so we, it's a, it's a, we always say this little courting line where we put the, we put the equity back in private equity, <laughs> <laughs> but, but really, you know, from a, from a, a, um, you know, uh, just like a, a lot of things, the, the question of who gets the benefit is really at, at the core. So whether we're talking about publicly traded companies, whether we're talking about private equity, it's a question of who's creating the, the value every day and who's able to, to see that value every day. And we talk about all the time, you know, entrepreneurship in its purest form, so to speak, is supposed to be about risk and reward, right? You're sharing the risk, you're sharing the reward. And what we talked about for a long time is that workers have always shared in all of the risk, all of the downside falls on workers' backs as it does with owners. And I think the pandemic has just made that more clear than ever. But that upside is, is not, oftentimes not there. And so when we talk about traditional private, you know, from a, from a operating structure, we do what private equity is supposed to do. You find really good, high quality businesses, you go in, you work with those small businesses, help them grow, help them help, well, what they're supposed to do, help, help them be sustainable, help them build strong balance sheets um, and, and help create stronger businesses. And the question is once you've created that stronger business and you've created that, that difference between where it was and where it is now, who gets the capture? Who gets the capture? Who created that and who did that? It's our belief that when we go in the firms, it's the workers, it's the, it's the managers, it's the leadership, because you can still have, there's still structure in these firms that are the ones who've done that. Um, and that if you reward them, you know, reward them properly what they reserve, deserve, they will, they will continue to do that. So, you know, the term extractive in the world of financing comes out of a lot. So a lot of times when we're looking at our product, it's typically a private equity mezzanine debt product. Is it extractive? Is it extractive? And we believe that when you're looking at a company that's been creating uh, value for 30, 40 years, um, and that has made it through ups and downs and has resilience, we're not going to fool ourselves into believing that the five years we're with the firm, we created some, you know, we turned it around. The company had already turned itself around 10 times and is surviving. And when you, I think the real question is look at what's the return profile? How much is coming out of the company and going to folks who aren't associated with the company or going to the folks who, who contributed the capital and how much is going to the folks who are on the ground. So at its core, I don't think it's an inherently bad, but that's where you have to dig in and kind of look under the sheets and see where's the value going and, and who's not getting it and who's getting it. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, oh. oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, <laughs> I was gonna say, he says it's not inherently bad. So, you know, I think the, uh, <laughs> the still deciding that, right? Uh, because one of the things that we really don't understand about it is, is that is that it's not really a true form of employee ownership when we have private equity involved. And that, you know, one of the things is, is that private equity um, does what it was designed to do, right? To use other people's money to make profits for their investors. And so when that happens, regardless of the business structure, I think that sometimes there is some collateral damage that happens. And so that's the part that, you know, as we begin to see these partnerships happen, we don't know how to really sort of like adjust for that, right? Uh, because it, that's not really the desired outcome that we want, want to have. 
Yeah, I think maybe in, in the kind of um, process of making a company or helping a company kind of get on its feet or be where it needs to be, there may be some drawbacks um, or cuts that have to happen or changes that have to happen um, that maybe at the, at the end of the day will benefit, that will benefit the people who are still around, but maybe not um, the people who aren't there anymore, obviously. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. You look like you have a response to that. No, and, I, and I'll say that. And that goes to in, in exactly what Gene is saying. When you have the recognizing that, that there are so many stakeholders to a business, right? Not just the workers, not just the owners, but the community around it. And somebody asked us an amazing question the other day. It's like, you're teaching workers to think like owners. But what if you teach workers to think like bad owners, right? And now they're making decisions that are not benefiting the community around them. They're causing environmental harm. They're causing environmental damage. And nobody had ever put it to us that way. We just, you kind of assume you get this democratic system in these companies with these workers and they're going to be, they're going to be better. And, and what we think the answer is that you're more likely to get better community outcomes when the owners of the business ultimately are the, also the folks who work there. But you're, you're right. There's no guarantee that uh, worker owners <laughs> will always do the right thing, but you try to help guide them, guide them in that process. And then I'll say with our investment strategy, it's not a model of, and you're right, a traditional private equity coming in and start, you know, cutting heads, risks, as they call them, reduction in forces. Um, and kind of our core model is not to go in and lay people off. That's not creating value. That's just, that's just kind of, that's not really creating value, just laying folks off. But how can we really help that team grow and help those companies grow? So our our first company, when we came in, they had about 114 people. And you know, six months later, seven months later, they're at 105. And that's what employee ownership done right um, can can do. And Gene, you're right, referring to what it looks like when it's not doing right is, is the other side. Yeah. Uh, well, if we're thinking about ESOPs in particular, um, I can see how there can be some skepticism. I think as as Frank maybe said, it's it's a it's a kind of um, shiny retirement plan, and I think a lot of time when you say retirement plan, people kind of shrug. Um, but you know, I think on the other hand, it is a way for um, employees to get involved. But Jen, I'm wondering if you could just talk about when you were at New Belgium, were there drawbacks to the ESOP model that you saw, and do you think there are other models that would have worked better for New Belgium, or do you think ESOP was kind of the right the right fit? You know. For us at that time, ESOP was a right fit um, for the things that we were doing. And, um, you know, the challenge, and I think Todd's alluding to this too, is no matter what your capital structure is, you still have values and you still have a business plan, you still have a strategy. And so, you know, making sure that, um, you know, if your marketplace is coming to, is starting to plateau, that people need to be aware of that because that can really change, like, how you perceive debt. Um, the, this doesn't solve for more macroeconomic issues um, like consolidation in the industry. And that's happening in the brewing industry of where there's issues with distribution tiers and access to materials. And so there's still a whole host of small business macroeconomic issues that exist outside of this that I think for us as advocates, we also need to advocate for that. Um, what are the things? Um, for New Belgium and also one of my uh, co-commissioners on the state of Colorado commissioner, Carrie Siggins, both of the case studies of the companies that we worked for 
we didn't become ESOP in like a flip of a switch. So initially, and this is also for Governor Polis's businesses, they started out as like gain sharing or synthetic equity programs and then grew into becoming an ESOP. And so I think there's, for certain companies, there's more of a roadmap into becoming more employee owned over time. And then that way you can evaluate the different steps and where you're at in the economy, where you're at in the marketplace, to be able to make those decisions more precisely. And so I think for New Belgium, switching from the 100% ESOP to becoming more um, part of a global company was more a necessity of the broader economy, not necessarily a reflection of the ESOP. And so business is complex, uh, the economy is complex, and there's a lot of forces that are affecting us outside of that. I think the one thing is for a company to become an ESOP or co-op, they need to be a strong company. It's not Somebody, a very skeptical person about ESOPs recently questioned me and felt like ESOPs were a way for owners just to get equity out of the company and then let it fail. Well, that company shouldn't be an ESOP. Um, that's not how this works. And so I think there is some um, skepticism that is fair, but it also it puts a good pressure on all of us in this industry to make sure, or all of this in this movement, if I can call it that, to make sure these companies are well-run companies and to support them and make sure they have the tools and make sure that people have an awareness that there's there's a much bigger system impacting American businesses beyond just this. And so there's a lot of problems to solve here. And I think we can be part of, part of doing it. One company that I work for now, I'm on their board. I really love it because they're kind of following more of a holding company model. So they have cash. And so they're actually going to start buying other companies, other small companies. And I am, that's one of the things I'm really interested in the future is if we can see more of those whole co-models where their ESOPs are acquiring other companies and bringing them in, fighting some of those economic tensions of purchasing power, um, access to capital and things that you just can't get as a small business, no matter ESOP or not. And so I'm hoping that area of this will continue to evolve and we'll see more parent company hold co-models helping other companies come into this where they might not do, be able to do it on their own. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think um, you often hear about ESOPs or worker co-ops as much smaller businesses. And one thing I've always thought about is, you know, I used to live in San Francisco, Silicon Valley. You hear so frequently in tech, uh, when an employee joins a company, they just get shares. And the longer they're there, the more shares they get. And then, you know, the company IPOs or exits, and they just get a lot of money. And that's really nice. And there aren't a whole lot of other industries that have that. Um, I wonder if any of you has seen um, kind of worker ownership or employee ownership in really big companies, you know, not, kind of like a Mondragon or um, really big companies um, have seen it kind of work well and, and what makes it work in bigger companies. Yeah, uh, a lot. I appreciate the, 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 the tech example. Um, and that's kind of one other aspect of employee ownership that's that's a bit different. Often they get options, right? You have the options to buy the stock at a certain price. And if the price goes up, you get to buy it at the old price. Um, but but again, this same idea, this idea of how do you tie the the success of the company to the to the workers, right? So the workers are now trying to make the 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 company successful. So options are something that's like you said, used commonly in the in the tech world. Um, but when you talk about kind of big companies and somebody in the chat I was scanning mentioned that co-ops can also get quite big. So there's a 2000 person uh, cooperative home care associates based out of the Bronx um, 
that's that's a very large co-op and does does very well um does, does home care services um but a lot of fortune five, well a lot of fortune 500 fortune 100 companies have portions of them that are employee owned through the esop the reason why those companies set it up were 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 different but you know take Publix, for example 80% uh, 85% owned by its workers um through this structure they're able to instill a lot of this culture and Publix is the oftentimes the number one rated um, grocery store chain in the United States. Um, Web Industries, where one of our advisors worked, uh, uh, Michael Corey, who's, a, who's an expert in the field, has been employee ownership a long time, very large company. They have forklift drivers who are there who have a million dollars. You kind of gave the example, or, or Maureen, gave the, Maureen gave the example of the million dollar uh, uh, store clerk. A um, million dollars in their retirement account uh, driving a forklift. So these sort of stories where you have these big companies that are successful, the folks who've been there a long time in these employee ownership structures should, again, if it's done the right way, should also be, be uh, ha have really bright financial futures in front of them and, and hopefully quality jobs as well. Yeah, well, um, you know, if you think about it, um, I think there are a lot of examples of this really working out well, but uh, I think there's a, a question in the chat about this being more popular in Europe. And I think that's true that there's something maybe about the American ethos that um, I, I'm going to keep what I made and I'm not going to share it because I made it. Um, Gene, I don't know if you've looked at this um, kind of internationally, um, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to why it might not be as popular here or if there are any ways to kind of get um, owners to start thinking about, about this model. So I don't have any factual data, so, so I need to say say that this is just from my own perspective. Is is that the way our our society has been set up that this this is how it works, right? Because we know that Mondragon has worked, you know, worked, you know, for over a century, right? And so we look to them for guidance. Um, and understanding, you know, around how they're making these structures work. But we also know that there are lots of cooperatives throughout the South um, that are re work really well, that are really large, and, you know, are working like well-oiled machines. And so, you know- oh, I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, oh, right. I'm gonna go back to that here. in a second. Okay. Um, I right. see that okay. Senator Van Hollen um, yes. has joined us. Um, so we're gonna go over to Maureen to introduce him and, and we'll, Gene, we'll come back to you in a few. <laughs> Thanks, Alana, and um, this has been a great conversation so far and uh, really uh, excited to come back to it, but we're really thrilled to have uh, Senator Chris Van Hollen uh, from my state of Maryland uh, with us today. Um, Senator Van Hollen has represented Maryland in the Senate since 2016. Uh, before joining the Senate, uh, Senator Van Hollen was a member of the Maryland State Legislature and served in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, he has been a tireless advocate for addressing inequality and building an economy that works for everyone. So, um, Senator, we're just delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, and um, we're excited to hear from you. Well, thank you, Maureen, and thank you so much for your leadership at the Economic Opportunities Program um, with Aspen. And uh, thank you for taking a break and inviting me to say a few words. And uh, Harry Stein from my, my team, my staff, uh, has been uh, on board and listening and participating and 
they'll continue to do that and provide me, me feedback. But um, I, I want to also uh, thank and give a shout out to, to Gina Schaefer and Frank Lindsay of a few cool hardware stores, uh, which has several employee owned stores in, in Maryland, uh, where you and I, Maureen, Maureen live. So uh, I want to thank them uh, and all the other uh, employee owned businesses and leaders that are joining us uh, today. And I know the focus is on how to improve job quality so that workers can reach their full potential and get the most uh, out of their careers. Um, we see survey after survey these days um, showing you know, many workers dissatisfied with where they are. Um, we have challenges getting more and more people into the workforce at, at a time when people are looking for workers. And so it really is essential that we re-examine our, our models. And I firmly believe that employee ownership um, should be, must be a part of a solution. And uh, I, I, I think it's common sense also backed up by the data that shows that, you know, if you wanna have an economy that works for everybody and more shared prosperity, uh, you need to make sure that employees can share in the success of the businesses uh, that they're contributing to. And that, of course, um, in my view, makes um, for a better opportunity for the workers, employees, um, and more successful uh, businesses, uh, certainly uh, over the medium and long uh, run. And I do think that this is more important than ever. We are now you know, witnessing decades, decades of a period where we see continued worker productivity that continues to uh, increase over time. Um, and yet what I call the great separation um, where wages have remained relatively flat. So um, since 1979, and I think many of you I'm sure have seen the chart, uh, you see worker productivity increasing by 60% uh, over that period of time, uh, whereas real hourly wages have increased by only about 15%. Uh, so uh, all that increased worker productivity um, is not going primarily uh, to the workers. Um, yes, it's going to investors and stockholders and the bottom line, it's, it's going to folks who are already at the very top of the income scale and not being shared um, more fairly with those uh, who are responsible for those uh, increases in production. So uh, we need to address that. And I do think employee ownership of businesses is a part of it. Uh, we now have about 7,000 uh, by our count, uh, 7,000 businesses in the United States that are owned by employees. Uh, one of the biggest names um, in employee ownership is the supermarket chain, Publix, uh, which generates 230,000 jobs and is 80% owned by current and former employees. And so that is a model for how this uh, can be done. Um, and if you look at the national data, employees are benefiting. I mean, again, it's intuitive, but it is important to have the data to back up that intuition. And on a national scale, research shows that employee owners have around three times the retirement assets of non-employee owners. Uh, median household wealth is about 92% higher for employee owners than non-employee owners. And employees with an ownership stake are more likely to stay with the business they work for than those uh, who don't. 
Um, so clearly employees are benefiting in these structures. Um, so are the businesses. Um, here's a quote uh, from a study on employee stock ownership plans, ESOPs, uh, by Jared Bernstein, um, who I turn to often for economic analysis and how, who now serves on President Biden's uh, Council of Economic Advisors. And I'm, I'm quoting him, ESOP companies and those with employee ownership in general have been shown to be more robust to the business cycle with steadier output and employment than comparable firms without employee owners. Pretty clear statement. Uh, and in the same study, uh, Bernstein finds that employee-owned firms benefit from one, lower rates of bankruptcy, two, lower default rates on their loans, and three, better performance on sales, job growth, and productivity. Uh, his analysis, as we say, is not just on paper. It, it obviously makes intuitive uh, sense uh, for the reasons uh, I mentioned and which have been underscored, which is when employees own the business, um, they have an ongoing stake uh, in the outcome. Whereas um, some, where if you have large outside investors who are sometimes focused just on the short-term profit, not the long-term gain, uh, that does not um, often redound to the benefit of the employees in, in, in the long run. So uh, this would be an, a big win for employees. Uh, it's good for business owners and it's good for our economy uh, in that it will result in more uh, shared prosperity. In my view, that means it's also good and, and healthy for our democracy. Uh, so why aren't there more of these? And hopefully um, as you uh, you know, have this discussion today, and I know that you're planning others in the future, and thank you for that. Um, why, aren't, why aren't there more? Uh, number one, many businesses simply don't know about employee ownership. So conversations like this are really important. Um, here in, in Maryland, in fact, close by in Montgomery County where I live, we have a, a big owner of a car dealership who I know very well. Um, he is working to try to transfer his business to employee ownership. And he has the resources. This is a pretty large car dealership. But, but he, uh, with all his resources, uh, has been having trouble navigating uh, how to do this. And, and that brings me to my second point, which is once you get to better awareness, um, it can be complicated. Uh, it can be legally complicated employee stock ownership plans, worker-owned cooperatives, and other employee ownership models each come with regulatory, governance, tax, and legal implications that have to be expertly navigated for lasting success. So that's another reason we don't see more right now. And third, starting a new business or transitioning on an existing business, transitioning it uh, to employee uh, ownership does take capital, uh, upfront capital. And Often, usually, uh, the employees don't have the ability to put up the upfront capital uh, that's needed. Um, and so that capital needs to come uh, from somewhere else. Um, we are working right now uh, in Congress on trying to address that challenge. I'm working on it and I'm trying to recruit uh, colleagues on a bipartisan basis so that we close those gaps in awareness, close the gaps in expertise, um, and close the gaps in the capital uh, that needs to come to the, the table. And, and the goal of our legislation would be to support 
private investment funds uh, that finance the establishment and growth of employee-owned businesses. So in brief, we would leverage public and private funds to help build out an investment ecosystem in which capital gets deployed for the benefit of employees. And our goal is that when a business is up for sale, we hope that employee ownership is always at least considered as an option with investment funds that pitch the opportunity and raise the capital and bring the expertise to make it happen. I do wanna stress here, and again, the devil is in the details. We wanna make sure that as we put public money into this, we have a structure to ensure that the employees are the end beneficiaries. Um, that is the entire goal. The entire goal is to move to these kinds of systems uh, to make sure that we have more shared, shared prosperity. And that brings with it the other benefits uh, we've mentioned. But we, we wanna make sure that these transactions are structured in that way. And we are building safeguards into our proposal uh, to do that. Um, and I wanna thank the folks from Aspen, um, as well as Todd Leverett uh, and his team from Apis and Heritage uh, who are here today. We've been consulting with them among others as we work to uh, structure this legislation. So uh, we're hoping to have something um, ready to introduce in the coming weeks, um, months at the latest, and uh, welcome your input uh, in this endeavor uh, because this is one of those key ways in my view uh, to make sure that a rising tide lifts all boats, uh, not just the yachts. Uh, and I think that is the fundamental purpose uh, behind this, this effort. And uh, I, again, thank you for the opportunity uh, to join you. And I uh, hope that we um, can get this movement, um, build momentum behind the movement here. Uh, that's what we're working to do with your help. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here. And I think uh, your analysis and ideas really align with what we've been, been talking about in this session. So I'm really grateful for your leadership in, in elevating this in a bipartisan way in the, in the Senate and, and, and hope you can move that forward. So thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing that with us. Thank um, you. I see someone's asking for the name of the bill. We have, were we're in the process of finalizing the bill. It has not been introduced, so it does not have a, a number or yet a, a final name, uh, but we are working uh, to, to, to wrap all that up. And again, welcome, um, welcome folks input. Thank you. Great, and we appreciate hearing about it and sharing information out as things develop. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Great. Well, that was uh, fantastic. And um, Alana, I just want to sort of bring you and all the panelists back quickly um, so we can have some final closing thoughts for this session. Great. Um, thanks. Well, yeah, as Senator Van Hollen mentioned, um, you know, this isn't still not very popular, um, still not very prevalent to have employee ownership. Um, in the U.S., I think Jean was going into a little bit of the reasons why that might be, but I'm hoping we can go around to each panelist um, and just say kind of what they think it will take to significantly grow employee ownership and what policymakers um, can do to, to, to help this become more prevalent. 
Um, so Jean, let's start with you. Um, oh, thank you, um, Alana. I think that was a great presentation by the Senator. I think he covered, you know, the information that some of what I was going to talk about um, in terms of why that um, I think that that it's not more popular. Um, I think the biggest thing right now is, is that, you know, we have to have, I think, a couple of levers, you know, particularly, you know, one is we um, do the education around it. Um, and really helping municipalities understand how this can build and stabilize their own economic development in their states is critical. I think the legislation, you know, but beyond the legislation, what happens is, is that, you know, we have to get it into regulatory rules, right? You know, that's the real lever. Um, the legislation without, you know, enacting the rules um, to make it happen um, still leaves us sort of like at a stalemate because we have the Main sh uh, Street Employee Ownership Act um, and that, you know, that passed um, and was bipartisan, but we're still trying to work on getting that into to the regulatory rules. So I think that that's going to be a key part also. Um, and then also, I think, you know, the public-private partnerships are going to keep be key also in terms of helping to, you know, build capacity for intermediaries um, like Aspen, Democracy at Work, um, and then also using funds to help leverage um, and support, you know, private equity um, businesses um, like Todd's that, you know, um, really have like a mission-driven purpose to really help BIPOC businesses Great. and employees. Um, and I, sorry, I forgot to mention this before, but if you're tweeting, please use the hashtag talk, talk, talk opportunity. Um, Jen, I know you've been thinking about this from the perspective of Colorado and kind of what states can do. So maybe you can tackle this question next. Yeah, I think Colorado specifically, I'm so proud of the work that we've done, but it's really how it's organized in the state. Because I think this is, you know, what we were talking about before too, is sometimes we do these programs, but they get siloed in a particular area. They're not fully integrated. So if we really want to create a durable system, we have to create a durable system. Um, so that includes, um, you know, state legislation, things that we could do to overcome barriers, um, the integration of these legislation with the Small Business Administration um, in a very real way. So when people get um, advising from the SBA that they're getting um, the best information that they can have. But I also think um, the universities and our education systems play a really big role in this. Um, you know, most those of us that went to MBA school, it's very rarely uh, taught about in part of that. Um, there's, there's a couple of programs, you know, the one that um, I worked at UCSD, the Beister Institute, um, but they're really not teaching inside the school. And so I think if we're going to look at this from the long play is we have to help people. Again, it has to be on the menu of options, but it also has to be taught in a way. We lose a lot of really talented, um, talented young professionals to private equity and to banking because frankly, you can make a lot of money there. Um, and so until we can figure this out and how it's a bigger part of that and how people can, young professionals can see this as a really viable career path, um, you know, I think it's going to continue to lag behind the other options that are available. There's just so many talented people out there and I'm really excited for the work, but we need more of them to be doing the work that we're discussing today and we need more job opportunities for them. We need it to escape the nonprofit world. Um, into being something that um, is 
is really tangible and helps people with their own financial success. So I think the university part is one of the keys here. Todd, as someone with the, I'm assuming who has an MBA or business degree, um, any ideas about what can make this more popular or maybe even what you what drew you as, as perhaps a kind of financially minded person to it? Well, Jen, Jen said it, it's, is, is it an option? Is it a pathway? pathway? Is, it, is it presented to you in a way where, where it, it can make sense for you, where you can do the work, but you can also take care of yourself and your, and your family? You know, it's interesting, you see a lot of opportunities like this where, where students can go and do the, the, the impact work, um, but they kind of, they may, you know, they may not be able to financially support not getting, you know, not getting a normal salary or kind of taking a cut. So you start to see that the, the industry not be as diverse as it could be. So as Jim was saying, you need to have the opportunities, but also make sure the opportunities can support the, the young talent that are coming out of these programs or schools. But, you know, you said it before, I, I did a law degree and a business degree, and I didn't hear about this uh, employee ownership in a real way until I was working at the Center for Community-Based Enterprise in Detroit, a, a nonprofit out there. So putting it in the schools, but then creating the organizations where the folks can go and, and, and do it, I think is, is really key. Um, one thing I wanna just briefly on the kind of what, what is needed, I think Senator Van Holland, I think Gene, um, I, I think everybody on this call has really said it. I want people to realize the urgency which all of us on this call and all the organizations that are working for this are working around. You know, over the next few decades, $10 trillion worth of business assets are gonna change hands as the, the aging baby boomer generation is, is, is retiring and they wanna exit their businesses. And we have a once in a generation opportunity to actually change the structure of wealth and ownership in this country in a real and meaningful way. And it's gonna take more than 7,000 ESOP companies. It's gonna take more than, than a few impact funds to get it done. We need, we need a, a, a nationwide, the way everybody's mobilizing around climate, we need folks to mobilize around this opportunity in a real way, because if we miss it, uh, the ability to, it, it may not come again in this country. So we want people to feel that urgency and hopefully that urgency will get folks researching, looking at, and creating things um, um, to deal with this issue. Great. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Um, but I just want to thank our panelists, Frank Lindsay, Gina Schaefer, Todd Leverett, Jennifer Briggs, and Jean Wordford uh, for a really interesting discussion. I'm just going to pass it back to Maureen for uh, some final words. Yeah, thank you, Alana. This has been a fabulous discussion. Thanks to all the panelists. Um, and thanks to uh, my colleagues, Amanda Finns, Matt Helmer, Adrian Lee, Tony Mastro, Victoria Prince, and Shelley Stewart for all their work in supporting this event. It takes a lot of us actually to put these things on. Um, many thanks to our audience. What a great audience today, super engaged, great comments in the chat, great questions. Uh, we could obviously have talked longer about this, um, but uh, I hope you'll continue to watch this space. Um, join us on the 17th for our event on worker co-ops. Uh, we'll be continuing to talk about opportunities for ownership. So thank you all so much. Please do remember to um, give us some comments in our feedback survey. It's always super helpful to us as we think about designing these events. We'd love to hear from you. And you can always send us an email at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Let us know what you think. Um, hope to see you again soon. Bye, everybody. <laughs>